0: You're listening to the Up In Your Business podcast, episode 017. On this podcast, we talk to Jay Bear about his new book, Hug Your Haters, leading remote teams, and keeping your marriage and family intact when career requires travel. Every year, sort of audit what I spend my time on
1: and find 15% of the things that I do and delegate those to somebody else so that over time, my how I am utilized becomes narrower and more concentrated instead of broader and more diffuse. Welcome to the Up In Your Business podcast. Building you to do business better. This show is about intention, transparency, and insights from business professionals sharing their personal business. Discover what they've learned the hard way. So you don't have to. Empowering a new breed of self-aware leadership. Here's your host, Angus Nelson.
0: Well, hey there. Welcome to the show. My name is Angus Nelson. This is the Up In Your Business Podcast. I'm super thrilled that you uh, took some time to be with me today. If this is your very first time, a very special welcome to you. I hope you enjoy yourself. There's many other shows to come. We got ourselves a new uh, rescue dog. His name, uh, we are calling him Nash. Uh, which stands for Nashville Predators. My son wanted to call him uh, Pred or Predators after the hockey team here in Nashville, and we said that that wasn't a very uh, easy name to remember or appropriate. And so they came up with Nash, and we said, well, that'll be fun. Let's just roll with that. So Nash it is. He is about a 75 or um, 80-pound labradoodle. And he currently is nudging up against my leg, uh, striving for affection. So if you hear any uh, wrestling around while I'm speaking, it's because Nash is over here demanding my time and affection while I try and talk to you. On that same note, I also want to uh, highlight a few comments that came up in the rate and review section of iTunes. I'm super grateful for people who have taken the time to share the word about their experience listening to Up In Your Business podcast. On iTunes, uh, Tony Lloyd writes... Angus is here to build self-aware leaders. He combines leadership performance and engagement to create an impact. Thank you, Tony. In addition, uh, Julian M. 888 wrote Strong Podcast. Can't wait to see what else you do. Thank you, Julian. And finally, uh, Bald Eagle 90 wrote, uh, This is rock star good. Angus has nailed it with this show. This is a great resource for business owners with fantastic guests. Get your pen and and paper out, you're going to be taking notes on this one. Yes, it is that good. Thank you, Bald Eagle 90. Um, I think it's that good too. I'm trying to uh, bring you not only um, some insights into business and, and some of the expertise of the people that are our guest, but also trying to take a little bit deeper of the emotional and psychological elements that are necessary or required uh, to be successful in business and successful as an entrepreneur if you're listening to this again for the first time um, My hope is uh, you would be able to engage with the content here. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, I love to hear from uh, people who are listening. Uh, you can reach me at hello at AngusNelson.com or come and find me on Twitter at Angus Nelson. And in addition, you can go to the website for more of what's available. Now, let's get on with the show today. We are talking to someone that um, I think you're thoroughly going to Enjoy. He's not new to podcasting, nor is he new to much of the content uh, that we cover here on the show. What he is going to share is some unique perspectives. Uh, ...that you probably haven't heard uh, in any of his other interviews. I kind of dove in a little bit deeper with him, and he was uh, very generous uh, to go there with me. So today, uh, we're listening to a marketing customer experience expert. He's a global keynote speaker, New York Times bestselling author of five books. Uh, He's a technology investor and the most retweeted person uh, in the world among digital marketers... He's uh, got a consulting firm called Convince & Convert, and he advises some of the most iconic brands and organizations in the world, including the United Nations, Oracle, SAP, etc., etc., He's also a contributor to Inc., uh, Entrepreneur, and Forbes, and all of the typical fanfare. Um, super well-known guy, but more than that, a super down-to-earth fella. And I'm really excited to introduce you to my friend, Jay Bear. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce you to that interview right now. Welcome to the show, Jay. What's made you smile the biggest today?
1: You know, Angus, as I've just mentioned before we went on air, uh, one of my coworkers sent me uh, as a holiday gift the single greatest like dessert item of my life. It was uh, ostensibly a moon pie, but it's not from this planet. Maybe it is from the moon. Uh, I am still in the afterglow of the deliciousness. It is the uh, the holiday season, so I am uh, as my as my teenage daughter says, it's the fattest time of the year, and it certainly is.
0: That's fantastic, and I, you know, the the fact that I'm from, uh, I spent well, I'm not from, but most recently from uh, Alabama, very familiar with moon pies. In yes. fact, uh, side note, uh, the turn of the year, every New Year's they have a big moon pie celebration in Mobile, Alabama, and the actual like you know. The apple that would drop in New York for the you know, beginning of the year, they actually drop a moon pie. See,
1: you can't buy that kind of advertising. That is, <laughs> that is rock solid. I was in Mobile two summers ago on vacation, funny enough. Mm-hmm. I myself there for quite a bit.
0: It's a great city. And it then was. just wrap around the corner in the bay there to uh, Point Clear down to Gulf Shores. Sort beautiful. of orange. That's, that's the secrets of Alabama. Nobody really knows about that. It's not no. as crowded. Here we are telling the world. So here's my other question for you. When was the last time you crashed a remote-controlled Oscar Mayer Wiener uh, vehicle? (laughs) The last time
1: I crashed a uh, remote-controlled Oscar Mayer Wienermobile that was sent to me ostensibly uh, as an influencer was like 10 days ago. Uh, (laughs) I... I crashed that thing good. Uh, I am not a particularly good driver of actual vehicles or remote control vehicles, um, but it uh, it was fun while it lasted. Uh,
0: in watching the video, uh, I was most entertained... you can
1: cut that video in, right? You can insert this into the show so we have reference. For the oh, that
0: watchers. would be great. I've, if I did video, but I'm not I'm not that technically savvy just quite yet. But um, my favorite part was the fact that you were just balls of the wall. You just you didn't like even try and half throttle it. You were just full right from the get go.
1: Well, you know it's a it's it's an entertain-me-now world, Angus, and, and uh, if, if you're only going to have 10, 12 seconds of attention in a video, you got to go full. I'm not going to feather the throttle to see how it works. I'm just going to see what happens, and in that case, it was a unmitigated disaster.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's, let's press down on our throttle right now. I want to jump into your next book that's coming yeah. out soon. If I remember correctly, it's going to launch in March. And uh, it's available for pre-order now, and you've got some little uh, fancy schmancy stuff that you offer as incentive to be a part of that. And we can talk about that, too. Uh, But first, I want to talk about what's in Hug Your Haters, how to embrace complaints and keep your customers.
1: Thanks. Yeah, March 1st is the official release date, as you said. You go to HugYourHaters.com, buy the book uh, pre-order from me. First of all, you get the book instantly. You get the it, the digital copy of the book right now instead of having to wait till March. So that's a pretty sweet uh, opportunity. And then uh, all kinds of bonus offers. You can get socks, all kinds of great stuff. So uh, here's why I wrote the book. So I've been in marketing for a long time. and And in my work with... Uh, clients, uh, I have discovered that you know customer service is the new marketing that increasingly you know your competition can steal your products from you they can steal your website copy they can steal your best people they can steal your pricing, but the one thing they can 't steal from you is if you generally care more about your customers than they do and and so few companies actually are good at customer service ironically, however, most companies think they are which which is tricky to sell a book like this because The research from Forrester shows that 80% of companies say that they deliver exceptional customer service. 8% of their customers agree. So We have a Mm -hmm. fundamental difference between what we think we're doing in terms of customer service and what our customers perceive we are doing. Uh, And and The other reason I wanted to write this book is that there's lots of great books about customer service out there, but but none of them are particularly relevant now. Customer service is being transformed as we're having this conversation, as more and more and more people interact with brands in digital forms, whether it's social media, uh, review sites, discussion boards, and forums. Most companies are still uh, set up with a call center mentality. Uh, and we're not too far off from nobody wanting or ever using the telephone to communicate to an organization. So we're going to need to do some fundamental reexamination of what customer service means. Uh, and that's why I wrote the book. And it's not just my opinion. I, I conducted a comprehensive researched, research project for this book um, with the guys at Edison Research. So we have mm. tons and tons of first-person, very serious data on who complains and why they complain and, and how they complain and what to do about it.
0: Wow. And I would say uh, having a 20-year-old daughter uh, lumped into that millennial generation, uh, she gets upset with me when I call her on the phone. She's like, just text me, Daddy. Just text me.
1: No interest. No, the, you know, I have a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, and, and I mean, the, the phone is the least used component of their smartphone, right? Yeah. Like the least. It's right. like getting them to talk on the phone is like, you know, you got to do it at a bayonet point. <laughs>
0: bayonet. Uh, with the contents that are in this book, where we're going to stick you like a dagger with your bayonet, here is your con- table of contents. I'll just kind of cover these real quick. Why you should embrace complaints, the two types of haters and the DNA of complaints. The Hatrix, who complains, where and why they complain. Customer service is a spectator sport. The big butts to providing customer service, the playbook for hugging offstage haters, and then for onstage haters, and the future of customer service. Yeah. Can you kind of share, like, let's just start with the Hatrix. What's yeah, that all hatrix, about? Uh,
1: the Hatrix is actually named by uh, Tamson Webster. Uh, credit to her for that assist. And the Hatrix is actually an analysis of why people complain and what they expect when they complain based on what channels they use. So there's a big difference Uh, between people who complain in private, telephone and email, and people who complain in public, social media, discussion boards, Yelp, etc. When people complain in private, they expect a response from a brand or a company or even an individual about 90% of the time. And and I'm sure the same is true for you and and everybody uh, tuning in here. I mean, if you call a company, you expect them to answer. If you email a company, you expect them to email you back. It's just it's the social contract at this point uh but it's a totally different scenario when people complain in public we call those the on stage haters and in those circumstances just 47% of them actually anticipate or expect a response at all. In many cases you're just bitching about somebody in in you know Twitter or Facebook or or Yelp you're just kind of getting it off your chest what you want is not necessarily an answer what you want is an audience. Mm. And so there's a huge opportunity for business to actually answer those people because they don't expect it and when you do answer them it can blow their minds. And
0: win their hearts. There's a interesting correlation there. You know, my day job talking about um, you know crowdfunding, crowd lending, and everything that's peer to peer based, it's amazing how the world, which was once um, beaver cleaver, everybody knew their postman, they knew the milk guy, they knew their butcher. And if Joe the butcher down the street cut my, you know, ribeyes half an inch when I asked three quarter inch um, I could go and complain with my neighbor and say, hey, Sally, did you hear that Joe, the butcher, he's ripping me off on these cuts. And eventually that gets around the neighborhood and now Joe has to do something about it or go out of business. Yep. And here we are, flash forward 50, 60 years later, and we're right back to it
1: yeah the same thing happens now just it 's just bigger and faster that 's why uh, I talk about in the book so in so many points that customer service is a spectator sport now. Yes, you want to address and, and assist and answer. Uh, and make it right with the person who complains about the about the thin cut. But the more important uh, dynamic there is actually all the people who are looking on, the people who are watching from the sidelines uh, on Twitter and Facebook and TripAdvisor and all these other places. Um, you know, the, the the crowd and their attitude is actually more important uh, in some ways than the hater his or herself.
0: Yeah, uh, when what about um, you know reputation um, of companies? And then how does that then correlate with the reputation of people? Um, You know, is there kind of a a symmetry there?
1: Yeah, it's actually the exact same playbook. So one of the things somebody asked me the other day was, well, in the book, you, you, you talk about the fact that you need to answer every complaint in every channel every time that that's the hug your haters formula. I said, yes, that is the formula. You should answer all complaints all the time that's not easy or inexpensive, but, but the data bears it out that that is a very, very smart way to run an organization. And she said, well, but what about an individual? I'm not a company. I'm just a person. I'm a blogger. I'm a podcaster. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a whatever. And some people um, take shots at me in blog comments or on Twitter or on Google plus or LinkedIn or whatever. I said, it's the exact same playbook. You, you answer everybody. Now here's the important, um, tip, piece of advice, I think though, um, In the book, I talk about that everybody needs to follow Jay Baer's rule of reply only twice. And that rule says that you never, ever, 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 ever reply more than twice to somebody in a public forum because nothing good becomes of it. You're either wasting time Uh, in a positive scenario. If somebody says, Angus, I love your show, you say thanks. They say, no, I really love it. My favorite episode is the one with Jay. You say thanks. If they come back a third time, you don't need to go there. You've already asked Mm. and answered. Uh, If you do that again, now you're just wasting time. If it's negative, Angus, I hate the show, you say, I'm really sorry. They say, I hate the show, especially the episode with Jay. You say, you know what, I'd like to learn more about why that's so. Uh, maybe this isn't the right form. Could you call me or email me or send me a direct message and we'll sort that out? If they come back a third time and say it wasn't just Jay, all the episodes are bad, then you just walk away because mm-hmm. nothing will, will be gained from you getting sucked down into a vortex of negativity, um, asked and answered. And because the spectators are so important now in customer service everybody who's looking on sees that you're listening, that you responded, that you responded twice, and that you gave that person a very realistic opportunity to mm-hmm. engage with you, or they just keep you know, taking shots at you. You do not need to take it all the way to its logical conclusion.
0: That sounds, so if I'm understanding correctly, um, so you're defining the difference between the hugging um, offstage versus onstage. That's correct.
1: And off stage, yeah, you should only answer twice on stage. Off stage, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. Um, usually, in off stage scenarios, phone or email, usually it gets solved in in one exchange because you've got that depth, right? Hmm. Usually, you, you call a company, they call you back. You don't have to call them a back again and then again and again. It just you don't get as much of that back and forth uh, off stage. Sometimes you do, but typically not so much. It's more of an on stage phenomenon.
0: And then, how do you define or how do you uh, recognize like? Some people they're going to complain because it 's a bad day, they woke up on the wrong sure. side you know of the bed you know whatever like how do you um, help curb some of that or or teach it to your teams or you know how do you define yeah. that and address the, the, it appropriately
1: you're exactly right, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's a missing ingredient in a lot of customer service today. I mean, the first missing ingredient is that is that especially on stage, companies simply don't respond. You know more than half of all complaints in social media are never responded to. Uh, you would not do that on the telephone you'd be like we're going to answer every other one of these calls um, you know we 're going to answer every third email that that'll be good enough mm-hmm. like we just we just operate under a totally different principle. so the first problem is we don't respond. The second problem is when we do respond. In many cases, it's because we're angry, right? We we are we're upset because somebody said our baby was ugly, and I've got a bunch of interesting uh, research and quotes from doctors in the book who talk about the actual physiology of of complaint and anger and how it literally like takes our brain and and puts it on haywire. So it's really hard to then answer somebody in a respectful, calm, helpful manner because you're all like googly in the head, mm-hmm. and so. What we're really missing in many cases is empathy. We just mm. lack empathy because you're exactly right, Angus. This person who's complaining, yeah, maybe, maybe their ostensible complaint is that their pizza wasn't hot enough, but it could be that they're having the worst day of their life. You know, mm-hmm. maybe something happened to a pet or a loved one or they got fired or they got in a car crash or, you know, this could just be the tip of the spear for them. Mm-hmm. You don't know what lies below the surface. And so you've always got to treat these these haters with empathy first and with humanity, A, because it's the right thing to do, but B, it will yield better customer outcomes. It's much, much harder to hate an individual than it is to hate an organization. Mm-hmm. And so you've got all these companies who, who address – Um, their complaints and their customers in sort of this distant third party cold way. That's why I'm such a big proponent of companies allowing their uh, first responders to use their real names and and be human and work off script and not be doing things like copying and pasting pre-canned responses and and all those things that that constitute an answer, but certainly not in a way that's that's, uh, empathetic or satisfying.
0: And that's, uh, kind of keys on the, the whole effort of asking questions versus placing judgments. It's so often, even in our own business, sometimes it, it could be so much easier where we could just say, Oh, they just don't get it. Oh they you know they they don't, they don't care or they're just they're ignoring it It's us. not they're... true.
1: You hear this all the time in complaints online oh that's not you see this negative yelp review. A friend of mine actually owns a a restaurant here in my town and and he never answers Yelp reviews and I said, dude, um I like just wrote a whole book about this i'm pretty sure that you should be answering these yelp reviews in fact i've got a lot of data that proves that point." he said yeah but you know what most of these reviews it's not even true
0: Hmm.
1: and i'm like bro it's true to them therefore it is true
0: and it's so it's got twofold you got market research so you immediately get real-time data of why someone's upset or why things didn't work and so all of a sudden you can make something different change better improved or the second part of it is if if you engage with them their level of advocacy their level of loyalty their level of uh of Adoration for your brand rises. It's amazing. As
1: much as 30%. An answer to a single complaint can increase customer advocacy by up to 30%. Mm. And that is pretty significant at any sort of scale.
0: Gosh, I mean, I apply this to my wife. (laughs) You know, like, no, seriously, you're right. This applies. It's like when you ask questions, oh, why, honey, why, why did you say that? Or why are you upset about this? Like, causes far more traction in our relationship and communication than if I just kind of scoff and blow her off like, ah, you don't get it. Yes. Like that is the parallel is amazing. All right. So I want to ask you, um, some quotes that I heard, um, out of this. Uh, one is that haters are not your problem. Ignoring them is, and we've been skirting around that this whole conversation. Can you kind of dive a little deeper into just that statement?
1: Yeah, I mean I mean businesses justify not answering complaints all the time, especially online as I mentioned, they they treat online customers manifestly different than they treat um uh offline customers in terms of their interactions and 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 the research shows that that is uh, a financial and psychological uh mistake and and there's this there's this kind of pervasive belief that that people who complain are somehow a problem when in fact it's the exact opposite. The people who complain are the single most important customer that you have because 95% of unhappy customers never complain in a form or a fashion that you will ever find. And that's true for business and it's true for individuals. In fact, I would wager to say, Angus, that 95% of the time that your wife is upset with you, she doesn't say anything. It's the 5% of the time that she does that you actually take notice. And so haters the people who complain in a way that we can find it are actually using their time mm-hmm. to help make your organization better. So they are incredibly, incredibly valuable.
0: I'm working on my, my wife's PhD. I can read her like a book.
1: <laughs> there you go. Nice.
0: <laughs> and I, she doesn't say it, but I know I've you done know. something you know. really
1: bad. It's the old body language, right?
0: <laughs> so on that same token, um, you know the whole premise of um, the price or cost of keeping a customer versus gaining a new one becomes, I mean, directly related to how you respond. Because this person's already paid for your product, used your product, got involved in your product, and now this is your opportunity to keep them around.
1: And and you would think that would be obvious, right? Somebody said to me the other day, this book sounds like common sense. And I said, yeah, it is, except it's not common. Uh, And here's why, because we know And you learn this like in the very first day of business, like you learn this, you know, by lunchtime of the first day, that it is more efficient to keep the customers you've already earned than it is to go out and constantly have to do sales and marketing to get brand new customers, right? Like there is no debate about whether that is so. That is so. Yet we don't actually operate our organizations that way because we don't answer all complaints. And in fact, when you look at it financially, it's even more staggering each year, approximately $500 billion are spent on marketing, and $9 billion are spent on customer service.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense um, when you understand how important it is to keep the customers you've already earned.
0: Nice. Um, wow. That's, that's staggering. 500 to 9 To 9
1: right? Wow. It is staggering.
0: Um, so... Here's another quote you shared, uh customer service is the new marketing. I don't know if you shared it or somebody said it about it if it's in the book, but I remember talking seeing in the book, it. yeah, other people mm-hmm. have
1: said it as well yeah, I mean it you know as i as I mentioned i mean that this is the way you can' differentiate and and customer experience in general is becoming uh how people make buying decisions, and customer service is a big part of that, and so it's the one thing that that your competition can't can't steal they can't mimic. Um, If if you, I mean, if I asked you right now, I ask anybody, uh, name me three companies that are great at customer service. You could do it. Boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. You should never be able to do that. You can name them because they are so rare. You can name them because they are truly differentiated. What does a defensible differentiation mean? That's called marketing, right? So Mm -hmm. those are companies, Nordstrom. Uh, Ritz-Carlton, Zappos, etc., etc. et cetera. Those are companies that have successfully turned customer service into marketing. And what, the reason I wrote this book is that they shouldn't be the only ones. Everybody can do this. You just have to want to.
0: It was in uh, episode um... – 005 that I was interviewing Peter Shankman and he said something to the effect of in the next 50 years, um, the entire element, um, of differentiation is customer service or customer experience. Yeah. Cause everything else is basically being the same. You can yeah, get mean, the, the same price, widget here right, and there. Prices
1: will all, you know, everything will mm-hmm. flatten out, right? Yeah. Um, you know, all, all your different, dif- all the other differentiators, price and availability and supply chain, all those things in a global economy will eventually fade away. They have to, it's just math. Yeah. So eventually, you know, the, the heart of your organization, uh, will, will be the thing that people really notice.
0: So I want to take a moment and talk about, um, the, the hug your haters, um, hatreds, mm-hmm. uh, metric. You talk about in there, there's some, uh, in that poster, there's some, um, I guess critical differences in those key groups. There's like yeah. demographics, there was technology and social media usage, complaint frequency, preferred channels for complaints, uh, expectation of response by channel and then impact of response and no response and customer advocacy. So that, those, that's all the elements of the, the hatreds. How did yeah. you come up with that first? Cause that's, that's pretty deep. That's fantastic. Um, and then how, what does that mean to a business? How do they, dif- how do they distinguish where they yeah. play in that hatred? So,
1: so when we did the survey, we, we interviewed more than 2000 Americans and we talked to them about, have you complained in the last year? And if they hadn't, we took them off the survey. Have you complained? If so, how many times? What, about which companies? How did you feel about the company before you complained on a Net Promoter Score scale? How did you feel about the company after you complained on a Net Promoter Score scale? And then we measured the difference in advocacy whether they were or were not answered. And then we cross-cut it by Facebook, Twitter, phone, email, and did a bunch of other um, kind of survey work gymnastics to, to pull together this um, on-stage versus off-stage uh, dichotomy. And it's it's really fascinating. The the the, the sum total of it is that. The biggest opportunity uh, for businesses and I would say individuals as well uh, within the entire realm of customer service today is to actually engage with people online everywhere mm. because the the bump right now in customer advocacy when you do that is by far higher online than offline, because it just comes down to that expectation management, as I mentioned. You know, Half of the people who complain online don't even expect to hear from you. So when they do hear from you, you are like, wow, I can't believe these guys were even listening.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you
1: know, and that happens in my own life. Like somebody says something unkind about me on Google Plus or whatever, and I'll find it. I typically find everything or most things. Uh, and I'll actually answer back and say, hey, I'm really sorry you feel that way. And here's what I think. And they're like, I can't believe you even found this, much less took the time to respond. Uh, it just takes the pot off boil
0: mm. um, I think that 's really funny. you said google plus it 's still in the conversation after it
1: seems to be uh, at this point the bastion of uh, <laughs> of negativity <laughs> at least in my world, but whatever
0: so I want to transition a little bit out of um, your book um, obviously you 've written uh, a couple other books too. you wrote. Um, uh, New York Times bestseller, Utility. You also uh, wrote The Now Revolution, uh, which actually that book seems more relevant today uh, oh, than when you even wrote it. So um, you know
1: what, I, I think we just like change the copyright date and put it back out now. It'd be way more relevant now. We I was were just gonna of, say you can make we're a couple ahead of the tweaks curve on that
0: book for sure. You can make a couple tweaks and you're golden. Um, so um, I'll have links to all of these uh, in the show notes. Um, but I want to transition a little bit. You're uh, prolific. Is that the word I want to use? Speaker. Um, I don't even know if that's the right word. I've been prophylactic, it sounds...
1: but it's your show, whatever you want to go with.
0: <laughs> so uh, in addition to being a speaker um, and author, you're also the president of your own company, Convince and Convert. Um, Jay, you've, you've spoken on a number of big stages, speaking to thousands of people. You've been here, you've been there. What do you put in, 100, 100 and some odd talks a year maybe?
1: Yeah, between live and webinar it's probably it's probably 95, yeah, something like that. Live so, live
0: talks probably 60. How do you um well, let me start with this. What presentation has personally impacted you the most and why? That I've seen? That no, huh? that you that I've given. Given.
1: Oh, great question. Um I would say a couple. Um so I did a thing just a couple months ago at uh, Content Marketing World in Cleveland. And I did a mini uh, keynote, about 18, 20 minutes, something like that, called the mom test. And it was all about whether or not the content that you're creating uh, passes the mom test. Uh, and And I use that paradigm because your mom loves you unconditionally, or at least that's generally the case. Um, and and if you create something that your mom doesn't love, you can't expect anybody else to love it either. And I used a lot of personal examples from my life and and my mom and my brother, who's um, uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And mm-hmm. and so it was a very personal and uh, and kind of visceral presentation for me. And I also, for the first time ever, used no slides. Uh, and it was a, a presentation that I wrote for that occasion. Uh, gave once and will never give again, and so that was a little unusual as well. And, and the feedback uh, was really, really, really positive uh, to that. So, um, for for a lot of reasons, that one was uh, was important to me.
0: That's super. So um, I ask that because sometimes we 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 forget to lose touch of the impact that we make. And Mr. J bear, you make an impact when you speak uh, thank you. and you, um, I often say this, you know, it's somebody else said it first, but I, I repeat it. Uh, people rarely remember what you say, but they always remember how you make them feel and you're strong in spades on the latter part. Um, it just so happens that you also are pretty strong in the first part too. You, you have Good nuggets. You you hook people with your words. You've been super creative, and I imagine you have an amazing team that helps you put some of this together. So, in light of all of the speaking, all of the traveling, you're also managing a business. You're also the president of your own company. How do you? Um, Manage internal communications, your progress and process of the company while you travel yeah it's
1: tricky uh We're also a virtual organization, so we've got people all across the u s um, everybody is uh, kind of doing their own thing from home and and we actually as an organization there's uh, a dozen or so a dozen or so core members of the convince to convert team and then a a larger group of another eight or ten people that we work with on a pretty consistent basis and so uh that group only gets together face to face once a year. Um, and that's it. And so, we, we have very little um, uh, contact in three dimensions. Um, so there's sort of two tricks to that. One is 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 making sure that you bring people onto the team who can thrive in an environment like that. If you have somebody who needs constant feedback and and hey, is this okay? And you know, can you look at this? And, and needs that that very consistent level of. Um, reassurance. It's probably not a great environment. And I've been doing this long enough. And this is the, the fifth company, the fifth sort of marketing services company that I've started in the last 25 years. And so I have a sense for for what to look for when you bring people onto a team uh, like that. So part of it is just getting the right people on the team. And then we do use technology, as you might suspect, to try and and, and bridge those gaps. So we have a virtual office environment called SoCoCo. Uh, Where everybody actually has a digital office, it shows you like a floor plan and you can do VOIP and and, uh, live chat and things like that, which very much helps. We make, of course, great use of uh, project planning uh, software and things of that nature. And so um, and of course, email, probably too much email is is true for every organization these days, I suspect. Um, But I do have an amazing, amazing team. And and my job is to sort of point people in the right direction uh, and then get out of the way. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that I've gotten good at and it's taken me many, many, many years at to do it is to say, look, could I do this job? Totally. But I am not uniquely qualified to do that job. I'm no longer uniquely qualified to do the consulting. I approve everything before it goes out the door, but I'm not, doing, I'm not writing strategic plans. I'm not making PowerPoints. Um, and so one of the things we try to do as a company is every year sort of audit what I spend my time on and find 15% of the things that I do and delegate those to somebody else so that over time my how I am utilized becomes narrower and more concentrated mm. instead of broader and more diffuse.
0: When you're hiring, what is one thing that gets you really excited about a potential hire and one major, major red flag that you look for?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I would say... Uh, what gets me really excited uh, is is enthusiasm, and that may seem um, like a foolish answer or not specific enough, but it's funny you mentioned the Now Revolution. Amber and I talked about that a lot in that book, that, that in a world where everybody is on stage and, and it's all public, um, we, we probably ought to start you know, hiring for passion and then training for skills. Um, you know, I can I can teach you what you need to know at some level, but I can't teach passion. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I, I want, I want people on the team who are really psyched to be on this team and to do the kind of work that we do for some of the greatest brands in the world. I mean, we're working with, you know, the United Nations and people like that. I mean, organizations, um, that, that you work with in, uh, in your day job as well. And, and I want people who, who see that as an opportunity and are really fired up about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, that, that, that will carry through a lot of other rough patches if everybody's excited. Um, yeah. And then the red flag, uh, I think I mentioned it a second ago, is, is when people need tons of feedback. They're like, I need you to tell me how I'm doing all the time. Uh, it just doesn't really fit with our model. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm gone way too much in order to do that. And so you can usually pick up on that pretty quickly. And then the other thing I would say is sort of an adjunct to that. Um, as an author and the son of uh, an English teacher, if people can't write well, that makes me think there's a lot of other things they probably can't do that well.
0: Oh, and what if they're just a terrible typer? <laughs> yeah,
1: if they just have <laughs> what if they just have a crappy phone? It could happen.
0: So, let me uh talk from another level too is then how do you um mentor or how do you coach your team?
1: Yeah, you know, I I got to tell you I've I've, I've been man- I've managed to cobble together a few different um successes in business but the thing I'm most proud of, um, of all the things I've ever accomplished, is that through the, the number of companies that I've, uh, that I've started, uh, I think the number is 16 now. 16 people who, who I hired as very young people have now started their own business um, and, and that is is really awesome. I mean it just kind of created this whole nexus of people who are just living their dream uh, and and are doing it, uh, a great job and have, cha- have subsequently changed the lives of a lot of other people. Uh, I take a lot of pride in that. And so uh, what I try and, 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 and how I try to mentor people is to just give them the broad outline of what we're trying to accomplish – uh, and then and then give them the authority and the power to go fill in those um, fill in those blanks. Uh, I really, really try to not uh, micromanage people um, other than in very specific things where I'm sure my team would completely disagree with. If, if any of my team is is is, uh, is tuning into this episode, uh, just pretend that this is all true. Just nod. I don't need your comments, although I will answer them. I will hug your haters, but uh, just pretend that this is all true.
0: This, this sounds remarkably like um, trying to find out who those haters are, because one person may have one perception of, of what's course. going on, and the other has a completely different... <laughs> yes. Oh, the challenges of leadership. So... Let's talk about five companies in the last 25 years, six companies, I think you said. Like that. Yeah. So so that means some maybe didn't go so well. Can you share with us or are you open to share like what have been some of your failures or where Uh, you've kind of... I've been
1: lucky that none of the ones that I was involved in actually failed um, other than one which I did not start, but I was a senior director of in, I don't even know what year it would have been. Uh, that, that uh, I'm going to try and piece this back together, 98, I think, um, 98, 99, uh, I, I left a, a job where I was uh, uh, running a, a digital company and took a job at a startup. This is in the first kind of go, go, you know, dot-com boom days. Uh, and it was a free voice and video calling service, which ironically was almost exactly like Skype, but years before Skype actually existed. Hmm. So way early. And, and the problem was uh nobody really wanted it then people were like well you know i've got a phone like there was no there just it just was it was like the answer to a problem that nobody you know to the question that nobody was asking right mm-hmm. so way too early and then i was in charge of uh of marketing and some other things and and was doing my best job there as best i could do but the guys who started the company um uh, did some things from a fiduciary responsibility standpoint that were probably not strictly legal, uh, and and that uh, that caused some issues. And then and then quite literally, we were like in the limo uh, in in New York City with Goldman Sachs going out talking about what would have been a B or a C round. Uh, and that's when sort of the whole bottom dropped out of the dot com era. And, and and metaphorically, almost although almost literally, they like stopped the limo at a red light and like kicked <laughs> us out of the car. Like see you guys later. You know it was. It was, uh, you know, rolled up the windows, locked the doors. It was uh, it was an interesting ride, that's for sure. And about three months later, uh, I left because I could see the handwriting on the wall. And all my friends who worked at like, why would you leave? You've got all these stock options. I'm like, trust me, this is not going to go according to plan. And about a month later, they were able to go back and buy their own stapler back in the, uh, in the uh, you know, going out of business sale.
0: Was it the red stapler? The it was the red stapler, stapler. yes. Uh, so... From that same perspective of, um, you know, being able to be a part of so many companies, if Jay Bear were to write a leadership book, like what would be the one thing that you wish other people knew that you know and just haven't told them?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and I'm so fortunate because uh, I do so much advising of startups now. I mean, I'm an angel investor in lots of companies and I, and I do a lot of advice and counsel of those organizations. So I get a chance... Uh, to do some of that even outside of my own business. And I just, I cherish that opportunity. But I'll tell you the thing that, that I think um, most leaders are not very good at. And it took me a long time to figure it out too, is they're not very good at understanding their own fears. And, and when the leader is scared, uh, it's like dogs, right? Like dogs can smell fear. Team members can smell fear. And, and the leader shouldn't, um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be scared. You should probably be more scared than you are. Um, But there's a, there's a, a remedy for that, that I learned uh, and I call it dimensionalizing your fear. And, and what I try and do as often as I can is I grab a piece of paper, and I literally write down, you know, all the things um, that that I'm scared about. Uh, and and when you do that, it robs those things uh, of their power, because a lot of times we're scared about things that are kind of like amorphous, like we're just mm we're just uneasy, but we don't really know why. But when you actually commit to, to sort of saying in a bullet point form, or this is specifically what I'm scared about, you're like, Oh, well, shit, that's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it totally changes uh, how you think about fear and pressure. Uh, and that allows you to work with, with people on your team in a much more productive way I find.
0: Um, and I went through a dark period of time and my leadership too, where I had a business fail and I had the opportunity to go see a counselor. And I always thought that, you know, Seeing somebody and talking about some of the things I was struggling with, like that's only for crazy people or people that are super messed up and altogether a different experience. Once I started to hear the words coming out of my mouth and seeing that the things I was, you know, wrestling with in my own head or that I was conjecturing like were either false, completely made up, didn't exist, or I was projecting some of my own weakness and failures on others. And once I started talking about that, like light bulbs started going off, like, oh my gosh, it was, it was truly liberating. So I want to transition this to the next level then too. Let's take it home. So being on the road, traveling a lot, trying to develop trust, trying to establish rapport, connection, communion with a spouse, Mm -hmm. um, and you've been married for 20 some odd years or something like that. Yeah. Congratulations. Almost
1: 25. Thanks. Like
0: how have you made that happen and what kind of boundaries do you keep in your marriage uh, to keep things feeling safe and moving forward?
1: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, number one, to be gone as is, is, is much as I am, uh, you have to have a spouse that is a rock star. And I absolutely do. I mean, she... She really has it together, um, because the one thing you can 't do at least in my experience is you can 't be gone all the time and then also have a home situation where where every ten minutes it's like, "Hey, what about this what about that?" and you know you, you, you just can't you can't have a foot in both camps um, and and be mentally present to do the kind of things that that i 'm trying to do on stage and elsewhere and so um to know that she 's got it covered, and then at the end of the day, we can have a conversation and catch up and uh, and and have that kind of relationship is an incredible incredible gift and i 'm so super fortunate um, you know from a day to day operations of the household standpoint i mean i 'm kind of gravy right she 's chicken one hundred percent and i 'm just kind of like a side dish because they they get along okay without me i think I hope they prefer that i 'm here but but they don 't need me to be here, which is an unbelievable Uh, an unbelievable relief uh, to me. But I got to tell you that the thing that's most important and it's really hard is to not beat yourself up about it. Mm -hmm. It took me years, years, Angus of feeling super, super guilty uh, and, and crying in your pillow, you know, in the Hampton Inn, in whatever shit town that you're in. um, And just feeling like, why am I doing this? Why am Mm -hmm. I stealing this kind of time from my family? Why am I such a bad father? Uh, And, and at some point you've got to say, Look, um, this is the career that I have chosen or the career that has chosen me um It's not exactly how everybody else's home life is, but I'm gonna make the most of the time that I do have when I am there um and it could be worse, right? I could be at sea, I could be mining coal, I could be doing a lot of other things, and this is just our normal and and you've you gotta get past the i'm I'm a lesser Father, husband, whatever, and until you can get past that, it will eat you up from the inside.
0: And what are some of the things that you do proactively to then address, like being a good dad? If yeah. you're not there physically, are there any tips and tricks that you do to keep connected?
1: You know what I try and do is—is uh, is I really, whenever I possible, whenever they're not in school, they go with me. Um, um, you know, and so we're always doing, we're always scheduling kind of family trips around. Dad is going to go give a speech for an hour, but meanwhile we 're going to be in mexico right and so yeah. I really plot my schedule uh around when school 's on holiday and then and then do that and it 's been great because we 've been able to do some amazing you know stuff together as a family all around the world just by being you know thoughtful about that you know i 've got some friends like Marcus sheridan who um, Uh, You may know and listeners may know great um, marketing consultant and speaker. He homeschools his kids. Um, Mm -hmm. So does Sally Hogshead, who's a very busy speaker, much busier than I am. Uh, and And so both of them are able to bring their kids with them all the time, which at some point I'm jealous of that. But then I'm thinking, man. I don't know if I'd want to have a traveling party of me and my wife and they each have like four or five kids and a nanny. And I'm like, Oh my God, like the logistics <laughs> of that and the hotels and the airlines and the, you know, can I get an Uber for eight people? And, yeah. you know, I'm just like, I don't know that's God bless them, but that might be a little more than I want to <laughs> handle.
0: Um, well, uh, the final question for you. Um, so you can take this in one of two ways. You can either put yourself into sitting down with your kids at, you said they're getting up to that age, let's say 19, 20 years old, or even better, going back to Jay Bear at 20 years old, knowing everything you know now, what advice would you give him?
1: I am uh, a very impatient person. I'm better than I used to be, but I'm still not great. Uh, I, I want... I want all things now. I I live um, almost every day like it's the last day. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, I can tell you a little story if you get a minute about why that's true. Sure. Um, when I was uh, younger, my best friend from second grade um, ended up marrying my wife's sister. So my best friend became my brother-in-law, which is a great gig. uh, If you can (laughs) do that kind of social engineering, it is awesome. Totally recommend it to everybody. Makes Thanksgiving so much better. So uh, we just, you know, this is before anybody had kids, and we just had a grand old time. You know, we'd we'd see them many times a week, and it was just, uh, you know, it was like an episode of Friends, really. And when I was 32, we were all 32 uh, at that point, um, he came down with brain cancer uh, and he ended up uh, passing away not long thereafter. In fact, the day he was diagnosed is the day I quit uh, my job at the uh, at the failed startup and started my own company. I've never worked for anybody a day since uh, because I realized like, okay, well, if I quit this job, what's the worst thing that happens? I go get another job. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not, I don't have brain cancer. Um, and so that was sort of the the, the catapult I needed to to follow an entrepreneurial path, which I'd always wanted to do but was too scared to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, a real benefit came out of that. But but he was a person who, even since we were little kids, seven years old, always lived his life that way. Like today could be the last day. And that's it's so ironic that he was the one who got taken so early because he – he just naturally lived his life that way. And I didn't, um, I, I didn't, uh, not in the same way, not with the same gusto and vigor and verve yeah. that he did. And so uh, at at uh, at his funeral, um, I had uh, the chance to give a eulogy there. I've done a lot of eulogies, unfortunately. Um, and I said, you know what, from this day forward, uh, I am going to live my life in the same the same way that he did, and I have done ever since. And so on one hand, it's been, great. And it allows me, I think, to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, because I have that mentality. But it also creates a level of impatience and a level of, you know, what, what if this all ends today, um, that isn't always productive. And so what I would tell my, uh, both my kids and my younger self is um, sometimes taking a minute and just letting things play out is actually uh, the best policy, it just may not see it uh, seem like that at the time.
0: Well, thank you, Jay, um, for your candor. Thank you for um, just being you. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, how would they go about doing so?
1: Uh, lots of places. Uh, convinceandconvert.com has our, our blog and all of our podcasts and our daily email. JayBayer.com has all the stuff about speaking and videos and all that. And then, of course, uh, the new book is at HugYourHaters.com.
0: Well, it's been a super pleasure to have you, man. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh,
1: thank you. Good to see you. Have
0: a good I am super grateful for Jay taking the time to share with us today and being a little transparent and vulnerable. Uh, He is such a good guy. Uh, Jay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, For you, the listener, uh, I want to take a moment and talk about leadership and what we're talking about with Jay in regards to how we lead a team. So many times people... Um, try and lead with kind of an old school approach that you have to have all the answers. You have to have it all together. You have to be the guy, the go-to resource. And what i am come to learn and what you've probably recognized in a number of the people we've interviewed is that that is no longer the case. In fact, many times good leadership, powerful leadership is not about the person knowing all the content and being the master of uh, whatever the subject matter might be. As much as it is someone that knows how to manage and more importantly, inspire the team around them. I want you to think about that for a few moments. If a team member is serving someone who's like a tyrannical, know it all, own it all, control it all. A, it doesn't really make them all that enthusiastic about serving as a part of that company or organization. In addition, it also robs them of the opportunity of exposing their own creativity or their own perspective in a way that's free and safe. And lastly, it really cripples the organization as a whole to see new perspectives, to see uh, new paradigms for how it could operate or uh, market itself or do things Um, that serve their customers in the most powerful means possible. So what that means is the most powerful leaders are like water. Water is refreshing, and water goes with the flow in such a way that it can kind of weed around difficulties or challenges in the same way that a creek or a stream would make its way around a bend, around a rock, around a fallen tree, A true leader needs to see himself or herself in a way that doesn't get disgruntled or easily distracted by challenge. Instead of trying to blame someone, instead of trying to uh, point out where it went wrong or how it went wrong, instead, maybe taking a step back to say, how can we make it right? What ways can we prevent this from happening again? Many times, leadership as water can be the very sustenance that a team needs to get through a difficult crisis, the sustenance to grow and become all that they can be. To be watered is also to grow. To be watered is to find um, your source, to grow roots, to become stronger to grow taller. And ultimately, as a leader, what we want to do is surround ourselves with people who will go on ahead of us, who can be smarter, who can make better decisions. And now, as a leader, our life becomes easier because we've empowered the people around us to carry the weight of the team. And when the weight is scattered abroad amongst many, much heavier things can be upheld. So today, I want you to think about that. How can your leadership can be more like water in bringing nutrients and sustenance to your team and navigating the challenges even easier? I want to thank you so much for taking time to be with me today, for taking the time to listen again. A special thanks go out to Jay, our guest. If you uh, have enjoyed what you experienced today, have been listening uh, even to other shows, I'd really appreciate if you took some time to go to uh, iTunes and leave a review. If you uh, could do that and then shoot me a note and let me know that you did, I would be uh, glad to send you a free copy of my book, Love's Compass. Uh, in addition, you can come to the website and sign up for the mailing list. Um, on there, I am going to be sending some very special content here very shortly uh, in early 2016 to help um, create more leadership and to create more perspective on how to be your most effective self. And lastly, if you're on Facebook, uh, and I hope that you are, because if you're not, well, that's a whole nother conversation. Come and find us at our private Facebook group up in your business. Uh, Ask for an invitation to come in. I'll make sure that you come and be a part of the conversations we're having. And with that, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to be with me today once again. Have an incredible day. Uh, Be water and be amazing.
1: Thanks for listening to the Up in Your Business podcast with Angus Nelson. Find more at upinyourbusiness.co. Remember, that's .co, not com.